Welcome to SCORE Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss the responsibility of sport for and within society. What impact should sport have on our world? Can sport do more? Who is responsible? To address these questions, we focus on possible solutions and desired scenarios. We break our discussion down in four parts. First, we describe the current situation. Second, we draw the idea of future scenario. Third, we walk backwards, defining the key milestones. And then we call for actions needed today. And we are your hosts today, Donata Taddia and Alexandra or Sasha Volkova. Today we got together to discuss how to build a fairer and anti-doping system that protects athletes. And in particular, we want to better understand so-called story with thresholds. And for this, we invited one of the world's leading sports lawyers, Paul Green. Welcome, Paul. Thank you for having me. It's really, really uh, an honor to be on today. Paul is a founder of Global Sports Advocates, and he has represented athletes from more than 50 countries and more than 50 different sports, multiple sports federations, and national Olympic committees in various matters. Paul is not just a renowned international lawyer, he is also a well-known speaker and author. He teaches sports law both nationally and internationally. In addition to this, Paul is an editorial board member of leading sports law publications, Law in Sports and Football Legal, and a long-time member of the Sports Lawyers Association. Again, thank you very much, Paul, for being with us today. We are honored to have you in our SCORE podcast. And uh, with this being said, I suggest we start straight away. Paul, we believe that it's important to start with understanding where we stand today. Preparing for this episode and going through various cases you have managed, we realized that in the past 10 or so years, the technology advanced to the level of detecting tens and hundreds of nanograms per milliliter of various substances and their metabolites in the blood samples. However, what we figured that it's still not clear, or it's at least not documented and officially confirmed by the World Anti-Doping Agency, what is the minimum amount of substance, what, what minimum amount of substance does not have an influence on athletic performance? And uh, at the same time, athletes are still held responsible for containing those minimum quantities of substances in their bodies when they do not intentionally consume them and very often are oblivious to the fact that these substances appear in their bodies through food or tap water or somehow. Can you please guide us through this a little? Why so many athletes become subject to disqualification after consuming like meat or water or even just kissing another person who consumed prohibited substance? Well, it's a very good topic. It's really timely to discuss because the I think it's really at the forefront of anti-doping uh, philosophy today in terms of where we need to go in the next few years. Ten years ago, you're right, Sasha, the levels that labs could detect are nowhere close to what they can detect today. Ten years ago, a lab that detected, let's say, under 100 nanograms would be low, where today we're talking about detection of picograms, which is one trillionth of a gram. I've heard that described as one splash of salt in an entire swimming pool. At that level, it cannot help an athlete to have that substance in their body. It just doesn't. There's no performance enhancing effect at those low levels. 
But the issue becomes, how did it get in your body? There's no way to distinguish scientifically right now if it was a low-level contamination case like you're saying, or if it was what they would call the tail end of a washout period, meaning an athlete did take it intentionally, and then this is the very, 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 very end when they're catching them right at the end, maybe after 10 weeks of taking it or something like that. So WADA would say, well, we, we really can't distinguish and we need to police and let's err on the side of banning everyone, where athletes and other federations have pushed back and said, no, that is not fair. When the standard of strict liability, it's so high on athletes, you can't ban every single person without regard for how it got in their body. So there's been a big movement now over the last five years to try to come up with what are called thresholds or minimum reporting limits, depending on the substance, where now below that amount, um, it won't be an automatic anti-doping rule violation. Um, it could be considered an atypical, meaning they'll do an investigation, or it could be considered if it's below that level, they won't pursue it because it's so low that it doesn't matter. It, and it really is substance specific. A lot of these substances are very difficult to understand what they are. They have long scientific names and they're intimidating to everyone, including uh, certainly the athletes that encounter them for the first time, most of the time without knowing what they actually even are. Yeah, we, we discussed it before the podcast, how we cannot pronounce even some, some substances names. It would be really hard. So, but what we want to ask, uh, you mentioned that when they are atypical, um, analytical findings, there is still investigation to, to be held. So what does it mean? So even if it's a minimum um, reported limit, but the investigation still had to be conducted to identify if the athlete intentionally has taken it or it appeared in his body. Do I understand it correctly? So um, the way the system works right now is if it's below the threshold or below the, the reporting limit and, and there's an investigation, then the athlete still has the burden, actually, to prove under the WADA system where it came from. So let's say the athlete tests positive for a really, really low amount of a, of a substance that's known to be a mean hormone. I'll use one probably nobody else ever has heard of it, but it's called Xeranol. Xeranol is a drug that's used in meat in the United States and Canada. It's actually banned in Europe. But Xeranol comes up in low levels, and it's not a drug that people would use for doping. It's, it's not a drug that anyone would use, but yet it somehow shows up sometimes. And so the athlete would then have to prove that they ate meat within 24 or 48 hours. Do they have receipts? Um, can they prove they were at a restaurant? Can they prove the meat was not organic meat? Because organic meat doesn't have hormones that sort of thing. But the burden would still be on the athlete and they would still have to discharge their burden to show that yes, they ate meat that could have led to this finding. And then the case would likely be closed out. However, there are still cases with Xeranol where athletes are being banned for two and four years. So it's not like it's a guarantee. If you test positive at that low level, the case will go away. It doesn't always go away. Contrast that now with the UFC system. UFC is more what you were talking about, meaning that it switches. And this is where, and I know we'll get to the future later, this is where I think the future lies at the present, which is the UFC isn't beholden to the water rules and they and the USADA, US Anti-Doping Agency, have come up with a more flexible system. Under the UFC system, the same levels exist. However, if the athlete's under the level, the burden shifts to USADA to prove it was taken intentionally. And for non-lawyers, 
the burden shift is critical because whoever has the burden has to overcome it legally. And that's very, very difficult. So if the burden shifts to prove the athlete took it intentionally, it's going to be much more difficult to prove the athlete committed the anti-doping rule violation and the athlete would get the benefit of the doubt there. Um, it's very interesting. It, I just want to understand how many athletes are we talking about? And um, another question together with this, what are the uh, ways of, how do these substances appear in your body? So you mentioned meat and you've dealt with such cases recently. Um, I've seen a case where the outlet, she just drank the tap water and then there was something in the tap water. What are the other situations and how many outlets are we talking about? Is it um, a rare, rare situation or could it affect anybody? Well, I think it, we're talking worldwide, hundreds of cases a year. It's now, it, there are, certainly with meat contamination, there's lots of meat contamination around the world. It's, there's very, there are very well-known hotspots of it, Mexico, China, Guatemala, Colombia, countries where there's hundreds of meat contamination cases out of Mexico. I mean, it's just astonishing. So there's a lot. Less with water, but there's many studies with water contamination. And you did mention the one case that I had, Kristen Sheldabin, who was a gymnast. She tested positive for a substance called hydrochlorothiazide, which is a heart medicine not something that normally uh, a young athlete would take. We did a lot of research that night on where she drank her water from, et cetera, came out and realized Lake Michigan, which is where the city of Chicago is where she lived, had incredibly high levels of hydrochlorothiazide as was measured by the uh, Environmental Protection Agency in the United States. They testified before the US Congress about this. And we were able to produce reports that showed there was incredibly high levels of this particular substance in the water in that she drank. Now, why would there be such high levels of pharmaceuticals in the water system? Because old people take hydrochlorothiazide and flush it down the toilet. And once they flush the drugs down the toilet, the filtration systems don't take it out and the water stays in, the, in there. Prescription drugs is a big, big problem for contamination in that setting. And also in the setting of in pharmacies, pharmacists regularly contaminate medicine in the United States, in Europe, it's not just in countries like Brazil and Dominican Republic. It happens everywhere where the pharmacy will get a small amount of a drug and it'll mix in the other drug. Normally, for most people who aren't drug tested, it doesn't matter. It's not going to really affect them. But if you're a drug tested athlete and you get a small amount of hydrochlorothiazide mixed into your medication for whatever, then you're going to test positive. So World Anti-Doping Agency has actually put out two technical letters, they're called, in the last two years one to address meat contamination, one to address prescription drug contamination. And, and there are other ways too, but these are the primary ones right now that WADA is dealing with. Paul, uh, listening to you, I'm thinking, but do athletes know about this? Like that they can drink water and suddenly they can face a suspension because of a doping anti-doping policy. I think it's really crazy to, to think that, yeah, how, how is this possible? Why is up to them to prove that the water is contaminated? How are we in, in this system? It's a scary thought for athletes who have a high enough burden to try to avoid taking supplements that are contaminated and dealing with their performance every day to then worry about the water they drink, the food they eat. So yes, it is very scary. And that's why I think, in my view, a more equitable system would be the UFC system where the burden would shift and the athlete would get the benefit of the doubt, certainly at least the one time, the first time. WADA has a different view of it and the strict liability standard uh, 
says, and they'll even tell you, they'd almost rather do the opposite of what we learned in law school and criminal law, the Blackstonian ideal, which is 15th century English law, which is that I'd rather, you know, let a thousand guilty people go free than put one innocent man to death. That's what we think of when we're thinking of fairness. WADA is the opposite. They'd rather have an uh, put two, ruin two innocent athletes' careers than let a guilty athlete go. And, um, you know, nobody wants intentional cheating. I don't think anyone wants that. But at the same time, I think the system is highly problematic. If you have innocent athletes who are ingesting through contamination, food or water, or otherwise banned substances and losing their careers. I just think it undercuts the entire credibility of the system if that happens. And I talk to athletes clean every day and I do these presentations trying to counsel them how to avoid this stuff. And they're all terrified. They're just really terrified. I would be terrified as well. Uh, you mentioned in that case with the, with the tap water being contaminated with the drugs um, that you had to take a report of Environment Protection Agency, correct? So was it, just to understand the mechanics be behind of it, was it you as a lawyer together, or meaning outlet, requesting this report from the agency over there? Was this whole burden of you or you just by chance had it? Just to understand the, how, how do they source the, the proofs of their innocence when it's so complex? No, we had the we had the burden there. This was pre thresholds, pre minimum reporting levels. Uh, we had to prove where it came from, and we had not a lot of time to do it before the Olympics. Ultimately, Kristen got a no fault, which was and it was announced because this was pre minimum reporting limits. Today, that case would never have come out, probably given her level and what we were able to show. It would just have been dropped, but. We had to find all those reports. We went to the EPA. We found the experts. We got an expert uh, at a university who was willing to write a report for us based on what his findings were, what he knew. He testified and we found his name. So there was a lot of work that went into that. And in these kissing cases, which I've had several, and also sex contamination cases, because scientifically, these drugs can pass through saliva and also through bodily fluids when you're having sex. It's just proven. And... Uh, You know, it's happened several times and all those times we had to put it all together. We had to prove that there was, you know, we had to get affidavits from the boyfriends that they took these banned substances, that they had unprotected sex when they had the unprotected sex. Um, a lot of stuff like that. Hair sample analysis. There's a lot that went into us meeting our burden in those cases and convincing the anti-doping organization that, in fact, the athlete was entitled to a no fault because they could prove it was from sex or kissing. Yeah, and can, sorry, I missed that. How many how many outlets are currently under investigation or disqualified because of the of containing MRL minimum reporting limits, and um, in the U USA, for example, the, the area where you're more fluent. I mean, these are not. I wouldn't know all of those numbers because a lot of times these cases won't come out, right? Because if it's an atypical finding, Correct, it'll yeah. be confidential, and then the case gets dropped. So I don't know the exact numbers on how much, but I know that. At least in our office, we're getting calls every all the time about this. So I know that people come to us from around the world to ask us about these cases. But I, I think they happen with alarming regularity. Um, and, you know, I, I see other things that haven't I haven't seen in cases yet, but studies like one that I saw where it, this was at a WADA accredited laboratory that did the study in, in the, the lab in Cologne, Germany, which I think is the really an incredible lab, one of the best in the world. They do really, really great work and fairness studies. And 
I really, really admire those scientists. And they did a study on clomiphene, which is another banned substance that's given to chickens and how clomiphene can um, manifest its way into eggs that chickens lay and that people eat. And you can test positive for clomiphene by eating an egg. I eat eggs every morning. I mean, you know, now we have to have organic everything. I mean, and, and I really do tell athletes this now, you know, it's like organic uh, meat, organic chicken, organic eggs, bottled water only, don't drink tap water. And if you're going to have sex with somebody, figure out who they are before you do it. I mean, it sounds crazy, but, you know, you have the burden to understand what you're doing, who you're kissing, who you're having sex with, because they might be doing drugs and they might be contaminating you without you knowing it. I'm not really very fun on these talks. People walk away, I think, really not loving it, but this is the information that needs to be conveyed. It's really interesting because, again, I go back to the point, how do these athletes survive? You know, they have to focus on competition. They have to uh, think about their planning and then suddenly they have to think about eggs. So it, it's quite uh, it's tough, I mean, to, to figure out how to move in this ecosystem. But so my question is, how, uh, how can this system uh, change? You mentioned before um, that in the past uh, five or ten years there, is, there have been conversation do you mean conversation about uh, changing the regulations or uh, yeah, for sure. And the, policies? And the, among the stakeholders at, at conferences, you know, the old Tackling Doping and Sport Conference or the Partnership for Clean Competition, which is going to have another conference in New York in, in April. They had one in London in 2019. And this was a topic of conversation at the Partnership for Clean Competition. And actually, right after that, in May of 2019, was the first meet reporting limit for clenbuterol. That was the first time that they put anything in place. And that was really an experiment to see how it would work out. And then after the clenbuterol threshold seemed to work out well, the reporting limit, they put another one in for four other substances in last June. So this is an ongoing discussion and WADA is doing things to try and improve the system. And it has improved. There are many, many athletes now under the new rules that are not getting anti-doping rule violations who would have in the past. So there is an improvement happening. I don't want to make it seem as if there isn't. WADA has improved the system, but the question is, is there more they can do? Are there, um, are the athletes being consulted in this process, in these uh, gatherings, conferences? Because I understand there are experts on the medical side, there are experts on the legal side like, like you. Uh, are athletes taken into considerations in these conversations? I think so. I mean, there's more now of a voice, too, for athletes among the WADA system. There's a WADA Athletes Committee, which is a pretty new thing within the last three to five years. It really hasn't been around. But And then there are also athlete committees in the United States, like as an example, the AAC, the Athlete Advisory Council for the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, plays a big role. Uh, they'll provide their comments to U.S. Anti-Doping Agency when the new code comes out and that sort of thing. But primarily the WADA code and its rules are drafted by WADA, let, WADA lawyers, WADA scientists as they see fit. I mean, there isn't, it's not collectively bargained in a system the way, let's say, let's use the NHL, National Hockey League, um, or any of the leagues in the United States. They're collectively bargained. So you have a players union and you have a league and they come to an agreement over what the rules are, over what the thresholds are, that sort of thing. That does not exist in the world of Olympic sport. 
the rules are put out and the athletes must adhere to them. And so, and you know, out, off topic, but there's a whole debate about marijuana. And marijuana actually is a threshold substances, a substance, and the thresholds have gone up, but not enough that it still caused athletes to test positive. And how do we handle substances of abuse? Almost every other sport has taken them completely off the list, cocaine and marijuana, but they're still on the list for WADA. And so these are ongoing debates. So I would say the athlete role is pretty limited, truthfully. Nobody's asking me. Let's put it that way. And who, who, yeah, it is also a bit unfortunate. And who else is interested in this change, to, in driving this change? So as I understand, there are athletes, their voices are not uh, very profound in this process so far. There are lawyers, coaches. Who, who are other stakeholders in this process be, be, besides international federations and WADA and IOC? Well, you've got the national anti-doping organizations too. And in the United States, for example, Travis Tigert and USADA, US Anti-Doping Agency, have been very, very vocal about the need for thresholds. Travis has really led the charge on this. And in fact, with the UFC has created this program that I said was really the model. But when it comes to the US Anti-Doping Agency having to follow the WADA code, they've got to uphold the thresholds that are there. So for UFC, they might have a burden shift, but they can't do it for for the WADA cases because they're a signatory. They have to do what the rules say. And so uh, there are advocates to make the system more fair, but ultimately there's so many signatories and so many people involved in the way the WADA process is put together that uh, you know it's it's difficult to to enact change. It's it's a very slow moving ship, I would say. Thank you very much, Paul, for this detailed explanation. It is impressive to witness how the whole system is slow in changing and how innocent athletes are victims in this in this process. I, I don't think it's uh, really fair, right, Donata? <laughs> Not at all. And I think we it is time now to jump to the second part of our conversation, our desired future. Paul, what ideal future have you taken us to? What do you imagine a more fair and effective anti-doping system? Well, I, I think there has to be more uniformity on how we get to certain thresholds and how we get to certain reporting limits. And I think that there should be some transparency in terms of explaining to athletes why we're at certain levels. Like, as an example, you know, why is it five nanograms per mil for xeranol? In, 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 and why is it if, if you're at 5.2 or 5.3, you're above the threshold, but 4.9, you're below. I understand there needs to be a cutoff at some point, but how are we getting to these cutoffs? Why did we decide on five? Um, and there's also, it's, it's not entirely clear sometimes when these are implemented, if they include the metabolites, if they don't include the metabolites, these are questions that aren't always flushed out and athletes don't fully understand what they even mean. So I think more transparency, uh, maybe a committee that comes out and posts and explains with, you know, publicly why these thresholds were implemented, what the levels were and why. I think that would be helpful. And then I would encourage them to look at more substances than they're on the list or the UFC list has more substances than, than the list that WADA has. And I think that, again, these are policy decisions that are made sometimes not by scientists about deciding certain substances and not others. So 
I would say, you know, we still haven't gotten all the way there. And I think that there can be more fairness, more transparency, more substances added. And also the burden shift. I really think it's important that uh, the burden would shift to athletes if we're going to create a really a system that's truly more fair. There is still an athlete out there who will eat meat and not be able to figure out where the meat came from, who's going to end up getting an unfair ban because they can't establish where it came from to the satisfaction of that anti-doping organization. And it's going to go from an atypical finding to an anti-doping rule violation, even though they consumed it through contamination. And that just doesn't seem right to me. When you mentioned about the burden shift uh, within this ideal ideal scenario, so when it's identified that there is this atypical finding, so the, what do you mean by burden shift? So it should be up to WADA or to the International Federation to prove that the athlete is actually guilty so that he took this substance intentionally, correct? Correct. correct. So, you know, let's do an investigation. I think that's a great idea. Let's investigate and see what the athlete can come up with. Let's do an interview with the athlete. Let's see if the athlete's credible. Um, let's do a hair sample analysis of the athlete and see if the athlete's hair comes up clean. A lot of times, hair sample analysis can be extremely useful in terms of a tool because if you're a regular user of one of these drugs, it's going to be in your hair. There's no way around it. And I've effectively used hair sample analysis to show that an athlete was clean and it's not foolproof, meaning you could use it one time intentionally and it won't necessarily be in your hair. But I think these are all tools, right? I mean, you could, I've even used and utilized lie detector tests, polygraphs, and athletes have passed those. Um, I think we use these types of tools to look at and evaluate the case. And if we think the athlete's cheating, look, I'm not going to put my reputation on the line for any athlete I think is cheating. So I'll withdraw from a case if I think the athlete is, and they're not telling me the truth. But I, I, I just think the athlete, it's a matter of who you're going to give the benefit of the doubt to. And, and I just think the first time when you're at a super low level of a drug like this that's known to be in the environment, um, give the athlete the benefit of the doubt and prove they took it intentionally. When, when you say about burden, um, burden shift, do, does it mean also financial burden shift? Meaning that this investigation and all those proceedings would be covered by the investigation party or by the athlete or not? That, that's, that's actually a great point, Sasha, that the athlete has the burden financially to prove all these things. And it's a really high burden. And sometimes athletes will actually just give up and accept the burden, because the sanction, because they just don't have the money. You know, when I tell an athlete, you're going to have to do hair sample analysis and you're going to have to hire an expert. And then you're going to have to test all your supplements. And then you're going to have to try to find a, a meat expert. And then we might have to find, you know, a, a, a polygraph test expert. You're talking about $30,000, $50,000 in experts sometimes to move forward. And that's a lot of money. Water, remember, has an endless supply of experts. They can go to any of their experts in any of these labs, and they'll just testify for them. And athletes have to pay for it. Also, interestingly, any WADA accredited laboratory scientist is not allowed to testify for an athlete. So that severely limits the pool of, of who can testify credibly for athletes anyway. That's really a separate point, but there's a code of conduct for laboratories that prevents them from testifying on behalf of athletes. I think that's a really unfortunate rule. And if I was going to create a more fair world, I would also say that rule should not exist because 
what are we trying to hide? I mean, if, if, if a different lab can come in and help the athlete and offer a second opinion, why wouldn't we encourage that to happen? It, it doesn't make any sense to, to kind of freeze out people, but it's really a circle the wagons mentality where it's them against everybody else. And, and I really don't think it should be that way. I think it can be more collaborative. It really seems that uh, also the anti-doping institutions in your ideal future have been reformed, have, have changed in a way. What would be these key changes? You mentioned before about transparency. Uh, what else, uh, what values can these institutions have in order to be better? Well, I, I feel like th the case law says, going back in time, that the burden is equally on the The, the burden's equally on the anti-doping laboratories and on those scientists as it is on the athlete to be held to the highest standard of strict liability, to be completely transparent, to come clean all the time. But I've had situations where mistakes have been made by laboratories, uh, and I won't get specific, but mistakes have been made by laboratories. Testimony of, of, of laboratories has been far from convincing. And they have not suffered the same consequences that athletes have suffered. So I feel like they need to police the, the system as well. And if somebody on that side needs to be sanctioned, needs to be suspended, there are rules in place for that. And I think they also need to be applied with the same rigor that we're applying the rules to sanction athletes. Because the burden's impossibly high on athletes, but it, it's not as impossibly high on the other side, even though it should be. What are, um, saying on, on uh, the discussion around stakeholders, what are other key stakeholders in your ideal future that have taken more predominance or maybe they have uh, reduced their, uh, their say? So we mentioned athletes and their rights. We mentioned about anti-doping uh, authorities. Who else uh, is leading a change in your ideal future? Can you, can you repeat that and say it in another way? I'm not sure I got it. What uh, stakeholders are having a key role in your ideal future, in addition to athletes, to anti-doping agencies? So I'm thinking, for instance, uh, do international federations uh, play a leading role? Maybe government, because we're talking about um, sanctions, um, NGOs, uh, think tanks that can share. Uh, NOCs that can, that can lead educational programs. Sure. So well, I, think, I think all the above. Um, actually, interestingly, at the international federation level, the cases are becoming very consolidated. There's the International Testing Authority now, the ITA in Lausanne, and also the CAS ad hoc division. And so where you used to have all the anti-doping, uh, all the IFs and the anti-doping organizations handling the cases on their own, they're now being handled by a smaller and smaller group. So you've got, you know, one group of lawyers now in Lausanne maybe doing cases for 15 or 20 um, federations. I think that that lends itself to more consolidation could be good since it's efficient, but it also could lead to less innovation. And so, you know, there's less voices that are creating input, creating a better model maybe. There is, of course, the opportunity for every international federation and all the national anti-doping organizations um, to, to make stakeholder comments every year on the prohibited list. And then when the code gets revised, which is every six years, there's a, a big process where all the stakeholders get to make comments. And in fact, the substances of abuse provision was changed 
in the 2021 code because it was such an outcry among all the stakeholders between 2015 and 2021 that they, they had to do something because they initially were going to do the 2015 code and it got taken out at the very last minute. And then they went back in because if you read the 2018, 2019 comments, every one of them was about, we can't keep giving four years for marijuana. It's absolutely crazy. It's creating way too many cases for us. We need to change this. We need to do something. And so they did. You mentioned before, um, and you actually mentioned about it, that you would speak about it when you say uh, talk about future, about the UFC system. So where the minimum reporting limits, so when you... the the amount of substance in your blood in your blood is uh, below the minimum reporting limit so the burden so it's not up to athlete to prove that he is innocent it's up to the organization correct, correct. so what are the other uh, anti-doping programs that exist in parallel or separately from wada that we could take examples from the professional leagues also have in the us also have anti-doping programs um, major league baseball national hockey league um, National Football League, and um, you know they all have their own and National Basketball Association. Then the women's leagues as well, but they don't have that many cases in comparison. So I think the UFC model is more towards the Olympic model because it's more international in scope. There's more athletes. The, remember, there's you're talking about not in all of baseball. There's you know very few players as compared to the number of players that are, are athletes around the world. So it's a smaller pool. Um, but those those leagues have also gone more towards a threshold model and more towards a UFC type model where, um, you know, athletes have have a greater stake in the process for sure. The biggest thing to realize about the WADA system as compared to these other systems also, and that includes the UFC, is the sanctions are so much harsher. Um, four years ends your career. And in the UFC, two years is the maximum sanction. In baseball, for a first offense, it's half a season. So it's yeah, it's, it's impressive the, the difference in numbers. It is really impressive. Yeah. So you're talking the sanctions are so harsh. And it wasn't always that way. Before 2015, two years was the max. I honestly think we should go back to that system as a default. I think two years was more fair than four. And and everybody will say that I'm being soft and I'm just an athlete's lawyer, but I don't think so. I think there's an opportunity to make two the default where you could still go to four, depending on the circumstance when you investigate, and then you could come down below two, depending on the circumstance. That is the case for a lot of substances already today. Specified substances are already default two years that could go to four, depending on what they call aggravated circumstances. There's also non-specified substances that are considered the more serious drugs that are minimum start with four, and it's a lot harder to prove those. So when you look at specified substances today, I think that's a, mo a model that we should go back to for all substances. I, I just think four years, um, when you're talking about unintentional use in a lot of these cases, is so unfair that it makes the whole system um, just, you know, what I would say it makes the system, you know, what we want it to be, which is that it makes the system a deterrent. I don't think it really deters anyone. I, I think it's just a matter of deciding what the appropriate punishment is. I think realistically, while it may serve as some deterrent, and I've heard this discussion even back to law school when I was in law school over 20 years ago about criminal law and is it going to serve as a deterrent? I, I just don't think it is a deterrent. I mean, that's kind of an ambitious way of looking at any code or rules, but I don't think it's going to be a deterrent. I think it's 
the way to look at it is what's the most fair sanction here? So if I were to create the world, I'd go back to the pre-2015 code for sanctions as well and say we're going to start with two years for all substances as a default. It's actually the first time in our in our podcast when we go back to create a better future. But uh, let me um, let me s- summarize or wrap up somehow how uh, we see your desired or ideal future. So there is more the, the pillars of unity, transparency, the values of unity and transparency. Um, logistically, it's more uh, the threshold model and the burden of shift when the amount of substances is below that threshold so the burden mm-hmm. of shift should um, the sorry the burden of proof should be on the organization side rather than athlete side correct then less suspension immediate suspension for years it is too harsh it destroys careers sometimes especially in sports like gymnastics where it's very short the career is very short and um, uh, am i missing something donada I would add the importance of reasoning on the whys. So Paul said that his ideal future is a future where stakeholders ask themselves the whys of things. Why this substance? They explain the why of this substance to the athletes. So it's really clear to everyone and it's really enhancing the accountability of both the process and the outcomes. I like the part where we speak about transparency and education. I think many athletes um, are oblivious to what is happening to the whole list of substances. We, we there are famous cases when uh, athletes that are with a big entourage and agents missed some information, very important information about certain substances. Um, I, I do think education is critically important. There is a new international standard for education. That's also an improvement. And I do think that we're making progress on that. WAD is making progress. But I, I just think you can't have enough education. Education, I think, could ultimately prevent a lot of these cases, particularly in, remember, there's a lot of ways you can test positive or, or commit an anti-doping rule violation even without testing positive. There's whereabouts cases where athletes get three misses or three filing failures in a 12-month period and get a minimum 12-month ban. So you've got in those cases, athletes didn't even take any banned substance, but they're still maybe having their career ruined for not being where they said they were going to be, for getting to update their whereabouts when they went out and stayed out at a bar instead of going back to their hotel, those sorts of things. Yeah, it, it's it, they have a harsh life in forming every time where they're moving. And if they forget, it may also end up in a four-year suspension. We know such cases recently. Yeah. And, uh, then I suggest we start moving backwards. So what are the important milestones in this pathway from future back to the present? Well, I think maybe even let's go back to 1998 and figure out what were we doing here? Why did we create WADA? Why did the system get created? Initially, you've got a lot of athletes just flouting, openly cheating intentionally. There was no athlete biological passports, so they had no way to monitor blood levels. There was no steroid biological passports, so there was no way to monitor steroid levels. There was blood doping happening in the buses of of cycling teams at the Tour de France. There was open steroid use happening in all sorts of Olympic settings. There was no testing whatsoever. And so World Anti-Doping Agency was created, and it took about six years to implement around all the federations, this idea of let's stop intentional cheaters from ruining sport, 
from having a performance enhancing and benefit and advantage so that people believe what they see. And I think that that's still a great aspirational goal and really what the point of the system is. But what's happened over the last five, 10 years is the pendulum has swung to the point now where we have all the blood of all the athletes from the athlete biological passport. We have all the steroid profiles. So we know if somebody has an irregular passport, it's very difficult to blood dope when you have your blood being taken every month. It's very difficult to take steroids when they're testing you any time of day, 24 hours a day. Um, and there is still intentional cheating, but it's so much less than it was. The percentages are way lower than they were 20 plus years ago and probably even 10 years ago. So we're at a point now where the battle really seems to have become more about what happens at these low level cases where we can now detect so low on the other side. And it's likely that a lot of these athletes are innocent, but getting banned anyway. How do we handle that? And, and I still think that that's, you have to have the balance. But I think if you look back, I think maybe the system has gotten a little carried away on the other side in terms of where where they started out and where they've ended up. So I mean, from protecting the sport now to not protecting the athletes, sorry. I mean, we're, 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 we have cases where we have to have athletes get up and testify about who they had sex with. I mean, that's absurd. How are we litigating such stuff? Why are we, how do we get to the point where these types of cases are cases that are happening? There was a case last year where thankfully it was figured out, but an athlete put sunscreen on that ended up leading to a banned substance. And USADA's science director did a scientific experiment on himself to figure this out and actually ended up testing positive. And so they figured it out, but nobody knew about that. And this guy really was facing a career ending ban for putting sunscreen on. I mean, so that that's these are the cases that I'm seeing now all the time. This study being put out about egg contamination, like I mentioned, or if you've seen Hayo Seppelt's documentary, the German documentary filmmaker who's famous um, for his incredible work in the doping yeah. space on now you can have somebody walk by with a cream on their fingers, put it on your arm, and you can be contaminated and test above a threshold. And some of those substances don't even have a threshold. So, I mean, what happens now if you're out the night before dinner for the Olympic final and somebody walks out and stuck something on your arm causes you to test positive and you're going to get a four-year ban for that. So in your ideal future, this is not happening, right? So right. how we make these cases in the ideal we, we, we don't have these cases anymore. I mean, we still have contamination cases because this is the world we live in, but we don't have these absurdities in dealing with uh, these cases. How is, for instance, the burden shift happened in the future? Is it a change in the uh, WADA code, for instance? Is it uh, a, a proposal made by uh, WADA members? How has this changed in your future? It would have to be a change to the, to the WADA code, I think. It could probably be implemented through the, through the international standards. It wouldn't have to necessarily be in the code because the code incorporates also the international standards, what are called technical documents, technical letters. They're all binding just the same as the code. It's not just the code. So it wouldn't have to be every six years. It could be through through one of these um, international standards. By the way, the prohibited list is an international standard, the international standard that governs laboratories, international standard that governs testing, and all these technical documents. I think you could do it in various ways, but 
however you do it, it's got to come from WADA as a legislator making the decision that this is going to happen. That's the only way it's ever going to happen. And in my discussions that I've had publicly about this respectfully, but publicly, you know, in debate settings at law and sport conference in various places with the lawyers for WADA, they're not going to go here. It's just not going to happen. They feel like it's a bridge too far. And so we may never get there um, to the UFC world on the WADA side. Maybe we will at some point. Uh, because perhaps 10 years ago, nobody would have said, we'll get to where we are now with with the minimum reporting limits we now have. So I guess nobody can really foresee how the future will be. But who can influence it? So who can influence VADA to, to change the code or change international standards and implement those best cases, best case practices like, uh, like it's in UFC? I, I think the stakeholders internally will have to we'll have to really say we need this needs to happen. Um, you know, we, we put these these changes in place through the technical documents, but we're still seeing that more needs to happen and we need to go to this extra level. I mean, I know there are stakeholders already advocating for this. And um, to this point, they're, they're pretty steadfast that they won't go to a burden shift model. By internal stakeholders, do you mean national anti-doping agencies, um, international well, federations? These scientists on the inside who may not say it publicly, but would say it in a private meeting where they feel like it's more fair to do that. There's a lot of people like that who are really good people in the WADA system. There's many, many good people who've devoted their lives, who work for WADA labs, work at WADA legal, et cetera, who feel like you know these changes should happen, but you know they wouldn't say it publicly because it's too much it's too difficult for them politically to come out and say such a thing. There's a lot of advocacy work that that has to be done, as, as I understand. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if it's as difficult when it comes to education. So we discussed that in the near future, athletes are very well educated and informed. So there is a level of uh, transparency and disclosure of information from the key leading uh, anti-doping institutions like WADA. But what else, uh, what else can be done or has been done in order to achieve uh, more education? Uh, I'm thinking, uh, can more forums, transfer knowledge forums be organized? And who can do that uh, to empower athletes to, uh, to know more? Is it a role for uh, you uh, as a sport lawyer because you've developed a, an amazing knowledge and expertise on the subject? Or is it up to uh, national uh, institutions or national education bodies? What's your thinking about this? How can we plan for a better education? Well, again, I think it's everyone involved um, should do their best at the touch points they have to educate better. I try to do that where I can. I speak to national governing bodies in the United States, abroad. I've spoken on these issues and try to encourage athletes only take certified supplements. That's another thing the UFC has now done is they're giving their athletes certified for sport supplements through their performance center. And they've eliminated 80 to 90% of their cases, period, because a lot of cases still come from contaminated supplements. And we've come a long way on that too, because there was only maybe one certification service five years ago. Now you've got three or four that are all reputable. And now thousands of supplements out there are certified. So yes, to the extent I can do it, but I mean, there's over 200 countries that are signatories. And I think it's it's the responsibility. It starts with every Olympic committee. 
in every one of those countries and then to trickle on down to the national governing bodies of every one of those countries to educate the athletes in each one of those countries. So you have, you know, the Botswana Swimming Federation needs to do it. And, you know, the, the Puerto Rican Basketball Federation and the, the Mexican Table Tennis Federation, every single one needs to educate their athletes, needs to understand. Now, this takes money. I mean, you, to educate athletes, you, you need money, you need funds. It's better in person than on a Zoom when half the people aren't paying attention. But a webinar, I'd say, is a good way to start and try to raise these issues, whereabouts problems. You know, a lot of the national anti-doping organizations also do education. There's, there's portals online that athletes have to follow and read and look at and pass tests before they get put in the out-of-competition testing pools. There is a lot of education out there. At some point, the problem also becomes, even with all this education, athletes just don't think it'll happen to them. So they're really not paying attention. Um, and even in the United States, you've got collegiate athletes who are beholden to different rules, who then all of a sudden end up in the NCA, from the NCA system to the WADA system without really getting a full understanding of the difference. And there are different ways that NCA treats medicines than WADA treats medicines. And so athletes get in trouble there too. And what about journalism? Uh, does media play a role? What is their responsibility? Is it positive or negative if athletes get uh, to know more about anti-doping uh, through yeah, press? I mean, I would say that it's great if we could have responsible journalists who truly understand this stuff provide education for athletes, but there aren't too many reporters in the world that really know what they're talking about when it comes to this kind of stuff. There's just a handful. And the vast majority of coverage of cases that I'm involved with they just don't understand what they're talking about. So I, I think sometimes it can be dangerous too if you misreport information. It's it's a lot of technical information to understand, to report in lots of details, um, to understand, to to report on, you know, to make it a proper, proper piece. This is exactly what I was thinking, uh, discussing with you now and uh, about these technical terms and very specific medical implications. Uh, perhaps part of these uh, milestones to reach your ideal future is really the idea of simplifying the storytelling and the narrative of uh, anti-doping uh, cases and how to, to improve the system, do no harm and, and so on. And I think that this is connected with another question I had, uh, what you mentioned before about the risks of consolidation uh, that can uh, lead to less innovation. So how do you see um, a system where innovation is helping um, the anti-doping uh, system mechanisms? How is innovation happening? Is it a technological information, uh, innovation? Um, can, you, can you explain a little bit more uh, on this topic? Well, I think innovation would be reacting to the current situation and how it's changing and continually transforming. And so that's where I see innovation happening. And, and, and one specific example, again, I would say an innovative approach now is the way a lot of these um, leagues and the UFC specifically, but other leagues as well, are now providing supplements to their athletes that are certified. In 2008, the IOC did a study, 70% of the athletes at the Beijing Olympics were taking supplements. At the time, there was practically no way of policing this, of 
of telling athletes how to have safe supplements. They didn't really exist, these certification companies. And, and the approach to some of these anti-doping organizations like the British, I remember we had this discussion one time at a panel discussion, I was at London. Their approach was, well, just don't take any supplements, period. That's like telling a high school kid not to have sex. I mean, with all due respect, it's a ridiculous position to tell an athlete not to take supplements. They're going to. The question is, how do you provide the opportunity for safe supplements? Uh, how do you give them the opportunity to take iron if they need it or to take vitamin C if they need it or, or, or a protein powder? And so innovation to me is providing athletes the opportunity now with safe vitamins, safe supplements. That is an improvement. As I understand correctly, so if we move towards the desired future, there should be some internal moves <laughs> within internal stakeholders and uh, the water code should change and international standards of water should change. This can be influenced also from outside by proper journalism, by athletes' voices to be heard and of course by creating a certified um, sub certifying supplements production companies and uh, creating a list of safe supplements and list of safe substances to be consumed. Do I understand it correctly? You you do. And and there are various ways that that actually exists now, but I'm not sure that it exists for every athlete in the same uniform way. And certain parts of the world, athletes have more education and more access and other parts of the world, they have less. And so, I, I mean, I've done cases in more than close to 60 countries now Countries are not, all, are not all the same in terms of resources, in terms of the amount of education the, the athletes get and the opportunities they get. So, I mean, part of my goal is to be able to help athletes in small corners of the world, too, where they otherwise don't get that opportunity to, to have a voice. And I suggest with this, we move to the final part of our discussion. I not am Final and perhaps uh, more interesting, because Paul, we, we would like to ask you, what would be your call for immediate action today to achieve this desired future? Who should start acting today, right now? I mean, I don't know. I don't know how to, how, how to accomplish that. I'm not sure I can snap my fingers and make that happen. I, I think that there... There need to be more open communications, I would think. Um, again, more transparent discussions. I think about how to, the way to move forward. And there are a lot of committees and that sort of thing that WADA has, but they they don't really, they have minutes, but they don't, a lot of the meetings are done in secret and athletes don't have any idea what's going on. So, I mean, I don't know the way to do that, but I think to get, to make athletes feel more emboldened, more empowered and more part of the system, in some way, so they feel like they actually have a greater voice. And yes, there are athlete committees, but I don't think all athletes feel like those committees who are mostly retired athletes really have their voice um, when they're speaking. And by the way, maybe the partnership clean competition will be an opportunity. It's the first time they're going to have it in four years in, in uh, New York in April in 2023. There, there were a lot more conferences that used to happen than, than there are now. There hasn't really been a worldwide conference. There used to be what, what was called, again, the Tackling Doping and Sport Conference every year that brought all the stakeholders together. We had a lot of panel discussions. I think were very helpful. We haven't had that conference in a number of years. 
And because of COVID, we haven't had an in-person conference really in, you know, I'd say four years. I mean, World Anti-Doping Agency has a symposium, but only really stakeholders are invited. So we couldn't even go to that conference if we wanted to. So you're not considered as a stakeholder? No, I'm an outside athlete who's just a rabble rouser. <laughs> this is weird. So do, do you have another question, Donata? No? Okay, I just wanted to, to to wrap up and to summarize what we've discussed today to to understand better and maybe so it, it stayed, stays in our memory this way. Uh, so we're talking about the future where there is unity, unity a lot of transparency, transparency, where the with a trash hole model taken from UFC or um, <laughs> coping a little bit UFC example, uh, where the burden of proof is shifted from outlet to um, to an institution. Where well, there only is, in cases when they're below that. that yeah, the yeah, we are talking about MRLs, minimum reporting right, limits. Right. Yeah, yeah, not about all doping consumption. And of course, when it's proven that it's unintentional or when it goes per se that it was unintentional intake of this substance somehow. And uh, we mentioned about the, the list of specified substances or the list of uh, the uh, certified supplements as well. Uh, that in the, some of the producers of the supplements could be certified by WADA. This would help a great deal. Am I missing something in the desired future, Donata? I would definitely add the importance of the education uh, to have more uh, aware athletes of their rights, but also their responsibilities and uh, a more active role that they play in defining the policy and what's uh, right for them and for their uh, for their situations, and said that, I I think that uh, we can move to uh, milestones to our uh, action plan to desire this uh, to achieve this desired future. Definitely, uh, we need more cooperation among the key stakeholders and sharing uh, knowledge and best practices. Uh, we need the leading institutions to be talking to each other to understand their best practices and uh, how this can be implemented in their own uh, system. Uh, we need more uh, education so uh, athletes have uh, uh, a clear uh, path on how to be more knowledgeable about these uh, substances and also there has to be a movement towards an internal shifts in the mindset of these key leading uh, institutions. Are we missing something? No, I think, I think that's all good. I mean, I think the one thing to realize is this is a difficult topic and it's a lot of people don't want to deal with anti-doping in different sports federations. They want it outsourced so they don't have to deal with it. And it's, it's a hard thing, a hard topic to discuss. And so I think to explain to all those people the importance of understanding why they need to be more engaged perhaps is important too. So when we are starting from this right now, correct? But we are by speaking about it. Thank you very much, Paul, for being here with us today. It was amazing. It was super interesting and um, very informative, I believe. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And this brings us to the end of our show. Thank you for listening. This show is produced by SCORE, sport think tank based in Lausanne. Check out our website score-sport.com and our LinkedIn page to find more information about this episode and what we do. Our episodes are available on all main podcast platforms. 
Please rate, comment and share. This will help us a great deal. Stay connected and remember, nobody can score alone.